Revelation chapter 2. Total commitment. We had our annual theme, our annual meeting, I should say, this past Friday night, and we stressed out. You can see the banners uh, hanging. That's our theme for this year in 2022, um, is our total commitment. I was researching total commitment this week, and I like to study uh, what it takes to be an Olympian. You know, the Winter Olympics are just a few days away, and I read an article this week called Gold Isn't Glamorous, and it told about Olympians and what it takes to win a gold medal and all they have to go through. They said there are five basic things that you have to be to have an Olympic, be an Olympic athlete. You have to have a healthy diet, regular exercise, practice all year round with no breaks. Um, you consult health professionals and you get proper rest. And then they went into details about all that people who are Olympians, whether summer or winter Olympics, give up. Many times they give up uh, relationships with friends and spending much time with them. They certainly give up a lot of food and certainly a lot of their own freedom. The discipline, the rigor, the cost of not just being an Olympian and not to speak of even say about what it takes to be a, a gold medalist is incredible about the commitment level. They said they called it Olympic, Olympic level commitment. And they said that even when you win the gold and you get all the notoriety, up until 2016, that Olympic athletes who won the gold, silver, and bronze, they actually had to pay taxes on what the value of the medal was. Now, I never knew. They call it a victory tax. Is that not ironic? <laughs> but even in the medal they win for their country, they have to pay a tax on it. See, gold isn't glamorous. Can I tell you that's also true in the Christian life? See, total commitment to Jesus is not glamorous. Your name will not be in the headlines. I'm sorry, your total commitment here probably will not be a gold medal that you're awarded with. But our text is going to say you will receive a crown of life. Total commitment to Jesus, we said. This is our principle that we're using throughout this series. Total commitment to Jesus is total conformity to Jesus. In other words, my commitment level is measured by my conformity level. The more I'm like him, the more I will be committed to him. So that means total commitment really won't ever happen in this life because it's a trajectory. It's something that we're progressing toward. Our total conformity to Jesus won't be 100% until we reach glory, but we're moving toward it. Paul said, I press toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we're moving toward it. Now, the standard or the pattern or the model of that, of course, is Jesus. And we looked at a phrase last week in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 30, and that little phrase is unto death. That little phrase is pregnant with meaning about what it means to be totally committed to Jesus. We're going to find the other two examples of that little phrase in our Revelation text today. Jesus and Epaphroditus were manifested or expressed their total commitment by what we termed last week as humble obedience. So this week, as you turn to our text, the key verses are chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 12, and verse 11, because those two verses have our phrase, unto death in them. And here's what we're going to learn from these two examples, that total commitment to Jesus will always be tested. 
It will always be tested. Abraham was committed to God. He'd given his life to him. And God gave him a son, the son of promise. And then his faith was tested. In Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to take his precious son, the son of promise, and sacrifice him to God. See, he had to be willing. See, he had to say, Abraham, do you trust me? God says, do you trust me enough that I'll keep my promises with your son Isaac. Israel as a nation was tested. They had to believe that God had the power to provide manna for them in 40 years. And all over the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and all kinds of places, it says, and God tested Israel. He wanted to know if they would remain totally committed to him. Would they believe that he had the power to meet their needs, even though at times things look bad? Then you have Daniel and his three friends. See, God says, I know everybody's eating this, and they're going to be healthy and strong eating and drinking this, but will you trust me, Daniel? Will you trust me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Will you trust me with a completely different diet that most people would think would make your health go down? Will you trust me and live differently, starting with what you eat and drink? See, that's the question God's posing to you today. See, he's asking you, that, see, your, te- your, com- your commitment to him is going to be tested. And when it is, will you trust me? And perhaps you're here this morning, and you'd say as I'm talking, you're thinking, yeah, yeah, my commitment is tested. It's, in fact, it's being tested right now. Some, so, so let me ask you, do you trust God, young adults, today? Do you trust God with your dating life? Do you believe if you hold out and date Christians so that you can marry a Christian as God asks in Scripture and commands to do? Do you trust him? Will you be committed that he's going to come through on his word, that he'll do what he says he's going to do? See, are you committed to me, God says, enough to give 10%? Because sometimes you look at your bank account and you look at your circumstances financially and you're going like, wow, that's a lot to ask. See, here's what God says. Will you be totally committed to me financially even when it's hard and difficult? Will you be totally committed to me this morning, he says, and follow me and seek to be like me. When I reveal things in your life that need to change, things that need to, be, to go in your life, things that need to be added, will you be committed to me even if, even if it costs you everything? So I want to look at our tests today in the passages that we're looking at. We're going to look at two tests. I call them TLC tests, total life commitment tests. And we're going to see how these uh, individuals and these churches in the book of Revelation pass those tests so that we can learn to do the same. So there's two of them, and we're going to unpack them one at a time and look at them. First, if you would be in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Here's the first test. Your total life commitment will be tested by suffering. The first thing you need to know when you face suffering, whatever kind or whatever form it takes, You need to know who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me show you what I mean in the text. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8 starts this way. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and the last. Now, you might ask, why does that help me? Well, let me show you. Even the book of Revelation itself, if you want to write this down, This whole book is framed by that very title of Jesus being the first and the last. Chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, I am the first and the last. At the end of the book, in chapter 22, 
in verse 13, he says, I am the first and the last. And almost every time that phrase is used in the, in, in the book of Revelation, it is accompanied by this command, fear not. So see, today, if you're going through suffering, and you're going through really difficulty, and you're facing a lot of difficulty and troubles in your life, and see, when troubles come, it's, easier, it's easy to take your foot off the gas pedal you know what, I, I'm really committed to Jesus, but I got to pull back. Or I got to do, you know, I got to do a little less, and I got to put time over here, and, 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 so, and we get afraid of what this might cost us. So how does Jesus, who he is, being the first and the last, how does it help us when we're suffering? How does it help us not to give in to our fears? Know this, that little title of Jesus, he's the first and the last, comes from the book of Isaiah. There are three uses of it, and I'm going to read them to you. Isaiah 41 and verse 4. Feel free to turn there with me as well. Here's what Isaiah says of God. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. I am the first and I am the last. And besides me there is no God. Isaiah 48 and verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. In those texts, did you see? This is what the Lord says, capital, all capitals. This is what he says, beside me as the first and last, there is no God. The title first and last is a title only given to God. See, he is the origin of everything. He's the first. And he's the goal of everything. He's the last. From the beginning to end, God is history. He made history. He created everything. See, he is the beginning and the ending. That's why often it's accompanied by beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and Omega. See, God says, I sum up everything because I'm God. Now listen, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. You know what he's telling people who suffer in the church at Smyrna? Don't worry about what you're, what's going on in your life and the things you're going to suffer. You don't have to fear. You know why? Because I am God. That's the first thing you have to know. It's a theology lesson. Here it is. Jesus is God. He is transcendent. He is the sovereign God. He has all power and authority. He's the first and the last. And here's what that means for you today in your suffering. He's in control. He is sovereign He's got it all under control. That's why the book is bracketed by this way. Because when you look at the two times, 117 and 2213, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Can I tell you, read the book of Revelation. You know what happens a lot in between those two phrases, those bookends? A lot of bad stuff. I mean, you got scorpions and you got all this crazy stuff and fire and the half third of the world and all the trees and there's not, a, you can't eat and Christians are hunted down and the tribulation, I mean, it is a bad scene and you would be tempted to think between those two bookends, right, that Jesus isn't in control. Have you ever felt that way? Do you feel that way this morning? Okay, Pastor Walker, Jesus is the first and the last. He's the, he is God. He's sovereign. But take a look at my life. Do you see what's happening physically? Do you see the cancer? Do you see the marital issues I'm facing? Do you see the financial struggle? Do you know the emotional turmoil that is, is really rocking my boat every day? 
See, we can hear that Jesus is first and last. He's God. He's got it all under control. But look at my life. Look at Revelation. You know what? It's tempting to think that he is not in control. Satan may be in control. People who have political position and power, they seem like they're in control. But here's what you have to anchor your soul to. Listen, anchor it. Anchors are crucial. Do you know the biggest anchor in the world is the East River Anchor? It's 15 feet high and weighs 5,000 pounds. You know why? Because once you put it down, you can't be moved. Can I tell you an anchor for your soul is that Jesus is God, that he is on the throne, that he is transcendent, and that he does, despite what it might seem and what it might look like, he is completely in control. But listen, that's not, when you face suffering in your life and trouble, that's, not, that's important, but you need to know a little bit more. Not just who he is, verse 8, but what he's done. Look at the text. He's the first and the last, listen, who died and came to life. Do you see what he's saying? You need to know Jesus is God. He's transcendent. He's sovereign. But listen, more than that, isn't it great not just to realize that someone knows about your problems? It's great that God is sovereign. He's powerful. He knows about it. But does he, re- does he just know it because he observes it or because he's experienced it? See, Jesus is not only God, he is the God that suffers. He is the God-man. So when he tells in this text, this church, that suffering, that Satan's going to throw some of them in prison, and they're going to have tribulation for 10 days, see, when he tells them that, he's not just saying, hey, by the way, be faithful unto death. Let's get going. That's not it at all. Here's what he's saying. To every one of you who suffer and may face death, I want you to know, as God, I've already faced that. I've experienced it. See, you suffer, Jesus said. I want you to know I suffered. Read the gospel accounts. Jesus was spit on. He was beaten with rods, a crown of thorn on his head. He was flogged, and I won't even go into the gruesome details of that by itself. He was crucified naked in public. The pain, the agony, but you know the Bible doesn't even emphasize the physical part so much. But the spiritual agony of what he was separated from his father when he bore our sins. See, here's what Jesus, if you ever prayed, Jesus, do you really understand what I'm going through? And he says, absolutely. I just don't know that you're suffering. It's not just a mental thing with him. No, he's experienced it. Can I say it this way? He's experienced suffering in ways that you and I will never fathom or dream of. He suffered not just physically, socially, emotionally. He suffered spiritually and infinitely. He knows pain. He knows loss. He knows what it means to have people that are close to you turn your back on you. He knows all of that. And yet, here's what he says. I was dead but I'm come back to life. See, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what it's like to want to quit. If it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. He knows. He knows the struggle. He knows the fight. He knows what it takes to be faithful unto death because he was. 
he was. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, it says that he's the first and the last, listen, and again, and the living one. I died, listen to this, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Sheol and Hades. I went on a trip to Panama with Pastor Ray, and one of the days that we were there, he took half the group and they went to the shore. It was kind of a day we have a little bit of a break. He went to the shore, and then the other group, he says, I want you guys to go and see this church. And it's not that far away. I want you to go see this church and the people and blah, blah, blah. So that's what my group did. And you know, just so if you ever go on a trip with Pastor Ray, he said it wasn't that far. It took us four and a half hours to get there. So we're in this van, and this is the part where you're supposed to be relaxing on the day, right? So four and a half hours. And then he didn't say, he didn't tell us the part where also you have to go up a mountain and down the other side. So we're in this van, and they're driving, and it's this. It's just kind of like this. All the way around, all the way around, and round and round. And I won't mention names. It was so, you know, car sick. We had someone throw up in the van. This is all on my day off, by the way. And so we get up there, so someone's getting sick. We had to get out of the car a couple times so they could walk around. And it was this whining and whining. So hour, I mean, I'm thinking an hour to get there, maybe. So it just drones off. Four and a half hours later. That's just one way. So we get there, and it's just like the side of a mountain. It's up really high. It was pretty. There wasn't a lot of houses. It was pretty sparse for who lived up there. And there was this church, and there it was. And he said that when we got there, this guy would meet us. So we had to wait for him a little bit because he wasn't on time, maybe like 30 minutes. He finally got there. And so he comes up there and he goes, hey, I'm really sorry that you came all this way, but I can't open the church and show it to you because I don't have the keys. I go, come on, you're serious. He goes, no, I can't help you. I don't have the keys. So we prayed imprecatory prayers about Pastor Ray on the way back. But I never forgot that. You know why? Because the whole thing was lost because the guy didn't have the keys. Do you see what it says of Jesus? See, you know why you can face suffering and you know why you can face imprisonment and you know why you could even face death? Here's what Jesus says. Because I have the keys. I have the keys. of you. Listen, your worst enemies, including suffering death, I've conquered them, he says. I've conquered them. They can't hurt you. That's why I love the text. It says at the end, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see what he's saying? You live for me and be committed to me under the first death, and I'll preserve you from the second death. It's perspective, isn't it? There are things worse than dying physically, and that is dying eternally. Second death, that little phrase is used four times in the book of Revelation, and it tells us very explicitly that that is the final abode of the wicked. It's the lake of fire. It is the final place of eternal separation from God. And that's why the text says, and here's the admonition, here's the key phrase of commitment, verse 10, you be faithful, listen, faithful, there's our unto death, that's our phrase, 2.10, you be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown, and it's epigenetable, the crown which is life. That is the crown. See, Jesus says, you be faithful with your life, and I'll give you eternal life. 
It's not that we earn eternal life by being faithful, but we demonstrate that we have it because we are faithful. And so get this, total commitment is total faithfulness. Does that mark you? I mean, does it mark you when you look around and sometimes you don't understand what God is up to you and up to in your life? And you know, I know who you are, God, and I know what you've done, but I look at that and then I look at my circumstances and it looks so contrary to that. And sometimes you want to say, I'm waving the white flag. I'm sorry. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep having this relationship. I can't keep living this way. I can't keep denying myself. And Jesus says, I've got the keys. You don't have to be afraid. You can be faithful unto death. And just to give us a little nudge and push, look over at chapter 2 and verse 13. He's not going to just say it generically. He's going to give you a name to go with it. 2.13 says, read it with me, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name. You don't deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. See, there's a name. See, here's what Jesus says. I know you have my perfect pattern, but let me give you an imperfect pattern, Antipas. You know what Antipas' name means? Anti means against. Pas is the Greek word for everything. Here's a guy who everyone was against him. Antipas. Everyone, everything was against him. In the days of Antipas, in other words, when, the, when it was really bad and, and people were suffering, in fact, this is a guy by name who was faithful unto death. He says, remember him. You know why? Because that's the kind of faith you need to emulate. That's what total commitment looks like in your life. And by the way, the only other person two times in Revelation who's called the faithful witness is Jesus. Is that not an honor? Remember what I said? Total commitment is total conformity. And you know why Antipas is there? Because he is a guy that patterned his life after Jesus, even unto death. It's a fight, folks. It is a fight to be faithful. A fight to be faithful. And it's one of Satan's greatest weapons to get you to let, lessen your commitment to Christ is suffering in your life. But there's another one, and can I say more insidious because suffering is the temptation or the weapon that satan uses on the outside he wants to see if he can distract you through suffering and pain and loss you can't figure out what god is doing is he really loving you does he really care see you, he wants to attack you on the outside and if that doesn't work then he's going to attack you on the inside so his first tool is suffering but his second tool is selfishness let me show you the text, if you would, in chapter 12. This is a text, I call it a war zone. Chapter 12 and verse 7, it says there's war in heaven. Chapter 12 and verse 17 says there's now war on earth. So this is a framework of cosmic importance. A cosmic battle is going on. And I want you to see this morning, I don't want to get all weird and anything on you, but let me tell you this. There's more than what meets the eye going on when you're total commitment. If you think total commitment and, and, and those opposing you or the things attacking your total commitment are just the cancer and the sin and a really bad boss or a really tough marriage or things that don't go your way at church or whatever, if you think that's all there is to it, you'd be incredibly naive. 
And this text tells us that there is a spiritual reality in the heavenly places. There's a fight going on even bigger than your fight. In both passages, in chapter 2 and in chapter 12, the devil is mentioned. The devil's going to throw you into prison. And in this chapter, it says, and the devil is thrown down. You know, the dragon, the serpent, the ancient one, the one who deceives the whole world. See, can I tell you this? You're going to fight against suffering if you're going to be totally committed, and you're also going to fight against Satan. You're going to fight. See, your TLC will be tested by suffering and by Satan because, believe it or not, you live in a war zone. Your kids, when they go to school, they go to a war zone. See, your job is in a war zone. Your family, your house, and your neighborhood is in a war zone. And this is not being dramatic. I believe this with all my heart. Hell hates your total commitment. And Satan is totally committed to tearing your commitment down. He is. Read all the book of Revelation. Eight times the word war is used. 2.16, R2, 13.7, from chapter 2 all the way to the end. The entire book is about this gigantic cosmic war that's taking place, sometimes on earth, sometimes in heaven. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, because here's what God wants you to see. He goes, listen, you're able to conquer down here because I've conquered up there. Because there's a real battle going on. And all the time in the Bible and Revelation says, and they made war against the two witnesses and they killed them in the street. And they made war against the saints and it was given to them to conquer them. And it says they make war on the Lamb. See, you're not the only one. God says that the beast and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they attack, they attack the witnesses, they attack the saints, and they have the audacity and the arrogance to think that they can attack the Lamb of God. But the last time it's used, it says, and the lamb makes war against them. See, there's warfare in heaven and warfare on earth because Satan is so committed to you not being committed that he's going to unleash everything he can from hell to stop it. That's why God himself, chapter 12, verse 9, three times, chapter 12, verse 10 and 13, he says he had to throw Satan down. I mean, Satan, he would knock him down, he'd come back. See, God had to actually take him and literally cast him out of heaven. It's like a demonic, highest level demonic exorcism. And he wasn't even allowed to go in heaven anymore. Get this truth in your mind. Total commitment and total conformity will always have with it total combat. Always. You will not be able to stay on any given day totally committed to Jesus unless you realize you are in the, for the fight for and of your life. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil walks continually around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He will not stop because, see, he's totally committed He's totally committed to devouring you and ruining your life. His two most powerful weapons are suffering and selfishness. The attack on the outside and on the inside. So how do you fight Satan to stay committed to Jesus in a war zone like that? Well, the Bible tells us 
chapter 12 and verse 11. And they have conquered him. Now watch and see the prepositions by. There are two agencies. In other words, there's two things they had to have to conquer the devil, to stay committed to Jesus in a war zone. First one is this. It says in chapter 12 and verse 11, by the blood of the lamb. Now watch. And by the word of their testimony, and here is their witness, their testimony, that they did not love their lives, our phrase, unto death. You know what it takes to stay totally committed to Jesus in a war zone like that? His blood and your blood. It's not just Jesus' total commitment to you when he died on the cross. We love that. We love the fact that Jesus died for us. But then he says, will you be committed to me that you be willing to die for me? And we're not too excited about that exchange. Because total commitment is Jesus saying, I am willing to spill my blood and give my life so that you could be saved. And now here's what I want from you. Will you do the same? Will you say, Jesus, you died for me, you shed your blood, and if need me, I will be willing to be so committed to you, so faithful to you, that I would be willing to spill my blood for you. The word lamb is used 30 times in the book of Revelation describing Jesus 29 out of 30. Lion is used four times in the book of Revelation and only one time describing Jesus, chapter 5, verse 5. Do you know the pattern of conformity we're following? Do you know how you conquer the devil? Because you're thinking, if I'm going to conquer the devil, wow, I'm going to have to have some credible power and I'm just going to get a hold of him and I'm going to rip him to shreds and No. See, if you're going to be totally committed to Jesus in a war zone, you know what it is? It's not lion power, it's lamb power. Lamb power is, I will sacrifice, I will give up my rights, I will lay down my life for you and others. That's powering under. We like the lion power, we like powering over, we like the claws and the roar and the overwhelming strength. That's what we want. We want to vindicate. We, and that's why people are so aberrant about their spiritual war. I'm going to cast out the devil, and I'm going to put... That's ridiculous. That's not spiritual warfare. It's not us rebuking the devil. It's not us casting him out. It's that Jesus has cast him out so that we can power under. It's not lion power. It's lamb power. See, that's the agency. His blood and your blood. I believe, as I study this, these two texts, that these two key phrases are absolutely parallel. Listen to them. Faithful unto death, and they love not their lives unto death. The key phrase is the same in both. You know what is interchangeable? Faithfulness and not loving your life. You know what I get from that? You know what it means to be faithful? It means every day consistently not loving your life. That's what Jesus is looking for. And you know where I think John got that phrase? He got it from his master, Jesus. In John 12, 23 through 26, let me say verse 25 in particular, here's what Jesus tells his disciples. And John, the writer of the gospel and revelation, is listening. And here's what he said to him. 
Whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see what John's saying? There's these people who are so devoted in Revelation 12 during the tribulation period, so devoted to Jesus, so faithful to Jesus. And he says, and I want to tell you what that faithful word looks like. You know what it looks like? Not loving your own life. It looks like fighting selfishness. It looks like fighting, making me the center of my world, making me the center instead of Jesus. Jesus is not, life doesn't revolve around me. Mine revolves around him. That's what faithfulness is. It's every day, every day saying, Jesus, it's not my life that matters most. It's yours. They loved not their lives. In the Greek, the word not is emphatic. In other words, we don't do this, in, we don't start sentences with not. But the Greek, they do. Because here's what it is, the not loving your life. So when we love Jesus, it entails this, not loving ourselves. And we have, usually have problems with that. We normally love ourselves supremely and Jesus secondarily. That's the way we normally live our lives. But when you're totally committed to Jesus unto death, and you have Olympic-level commitment like that, spiritually speaking, here's what will happen. Jesus you will love supremely and not love yourself to the point where you can love yourself secondarily. See? That's different than almost everybody else. Here's what Paul says. Acts 20, 24, which will be our last sermon in the series. I do not count my life, listen to this, but I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself unless I finish the course in the ministry which God through Jesus has given me. Did you hear that? Here, look, look how he talks about his life. I don't count, I don't evaluate my life as having any value. I don't see my life as precious, something to hold on to. You know what he says? Here's the value of my life. Here's why I hold, if I hold on to my life, here's what it is to be like Jesus and to serve him and others. Do you see that? That's what Jesus says total commitment looks like. It looks like finding your value. Now, everyone else around you finds value, oh, because I can do this, and I have this, and I have this job, and I make this money, and I have this position, and I'm an athlete, and I can sing. And you know what? We, we honor all these people. In our culture, our culture is ate up with and obsessed with having value in all the things that you do horizontally. And Paul says, not me. Because total commitment to Jesus looks far different than any of those things. Total commitment to Jesus is having my value, and my life is all about the connection vertically. That I might value my life, I don't value it as precious to myself. God deliver us from self-love. We live in a psychological culture which says the key to success in life is to love yourself more, think about yourself more, do for yourself, make yourself everything, design yourself, define yourself. It's all about self. And if you follow that road, you can't be totally committed to Jesus, not even close. Here's what's true of people who were. They did not, not they loved their own souls. How far would they take it? 
unto death. In comparison, too often, unfortunately, with some of God's people, we can't even not love our lives unto coming to services. We can't even not love our lives unto spending time with God every day in prayer and in the Word. We can't even not love our lives because we're not willing to submit our plans. See, we have our plans for our life, and we try to fit God into them. And God says, no, be totally committed. Listen, I have a story I'm telling. Put your life and your story under mine. Under mine. See, God, here's your plans for my life. How do I fit into it? We should be asking that question. We can't even not love our lives under getting involved in a small group or a D group or being active in a ministry because we can't get by, by ourselves to want to sacrifice and pour into the lives of others. Instead, we waste our lives playing video games and spending all kinds of time on Facebook, on the internet, and all the things that go on there. See, but we can't lose our lives enough to stop it and get off of it and do something meaningful with our lives. We can't even not love our lives enough to say no to our own sin that could be this morning ruining your marriage and your life and your testimony and Jesus' church. Oh, see? He says, and they conquered him. See the two passages? All seven churches have this at the end, and they conquered, and they conquered. And that's the word Nike we get Nike shoes from. It means to be victorious. See, there is, and we sing the beautiful hymn, Victory in Jesus. There is victory in Jesus, but you know what it is? It's victory like Jesus. We don't sing that. Victory in Jesus is victory like Jesus. And how did he get it? He shed his blood. He humbled himself. He became obedient. Even when it was painful and it cost him everything. See, faithful unto death. Obedient unto death. Not loving your life unto death. That's total commitment. That's to- and that's when you know you're passing the TLC test. See, when you have that kind of commitment to Jesus, outside and inside. Is that you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these two powerful texts. Texts that have a context where everything around them is frightening and against them. They live in a culture that was persecuting and suffering and imprisoning and martyring them. Father, we don't live in that culture yet. Yet. But it's becoming more intense. And the price is becoming higher. Father, may we be willing to pay it because you paid for us with your blood. Oh, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of Christ compels me, that I would no longer live for myself. See, not loving my life. No longer live for myself, but for him who died and was raised on the third day. Jesus, you've conquered suffering and selfishness, sin, You've conquered it all. You're the first and the last. And you know exactly what people in this room are facing today. You know what's keeping them from making the decision and following through on being totally, totally committed to you. Father, would you, 
look into their hearts and help them to see you and who you are and what you've done that they might be desirous this morning by your grace and spirit to be more conformed to you so they can be more committed to you. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing for it's in our Savior Jesus who is obedient unto death, we pray. Amen.